Peace and welcome. I am here with the most honorable esteemed, the good brother from East Oakland, <laughs> Dr. Death Duncan Andrade. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, no doubt. It's my pleasure. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Jeff Duncan Andrade is very well known in many education circles um, as an author, uh, the founder of Roses in the Concrete. Um, he started uh, some other really ventures, cool ventures I want to get into around um, uh, responsive evaluation for, for teachers to help elevate um, great teaching practice. But before we jump into that, he's also a father and running a school and teaching as a professor and he's dealing with this quarantine madness. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, how, how's it going with the kids and, uh, and also trying to balance all the other educating requirements? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, at, at one level, you know, my, my sons go to the school that we started in, in East Oakland, uh, Roses in Concrete. But, you know, I, I've always, you know, wondered about homeschooling my children, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a longtime educator. I've been teaching in this city for nearly 30 years. So, you know, having my boys home, is ain't no thing to me you know like teaching teaching them you know setting up a schedule all that but it's um it's been deep man like um you know my sons are seven they're in first grade and just um you know most of my teaching experience is in secondary almost all in high school so i just you know like mad respect for elementary school teachers mad respect that I didn't have really as a high school teacher, you know, like the disconnectedness between, you know, secondary teachers and elementary school teachers, I think has, has been really illuminated for me um, because of roses, because we're in a, you know, a K eight, but now like more than ever, um, the need for high school teachers to really understand what elementary school teachers do and, and vice versa. Right. Um, and just the deepness of understanding, you know, like, I, I, I don't remember how I learned how to read. And so teaching my sons, you know, how to read, and my sons are in first grade, so they, you know, they, they, they read well beyond their grade level, but it's just deep to me, you know, to watch formationally how, what children read. So the, so they, just as one example, and then I'll, I'll beg off of this, but um we we use a, the american reading company as our literacy program at at um at roses and and so they have an online platform and so my son was on there and you know he's he's according to them he's reading at a fourth grade level and so he goes into you know the fourth grade books and he 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 and and I'm 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 I like I went to cook him lunch so I'm like you know you got to read while I'm you know doing lunch and I come back, and he's reading a book on 9-11. Hmm. And it's this, you know, so this is a, like a progressive, you know, literacy company. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I, I, I'm trying not to be like, you know, Mr. Social Justice, right? So I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just watching my boys, you know, read. 
and they're reading about Osama bin Laden. And they're reading about terrorists, right? And there's no interrog. It's, it's like flat facts. Like Osama mm. bin Laden was a terrorist, right? He did that. You know, there's, there's no like... So it's just deep to me, like how if you're not really on top of even, even like I live in the most, I'm okay. Maybe not the most, but like in a profoundly socially just committed environment for the raising of my children. Mm-hmm. And if I'm asleep, if I'm, if I like, you know, slept off for 30 minutes, my sons are like developing this, um, analysis about terrorism, right? Yeah. Which is going to carry over to their framework and their 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 their, their visual acknowledgement of Muslim people. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. anyway, the, the I I think that the deeper point for me is that that I've this has been, you know, I'm I'm incredibly privileged to be able to. Um, and and troubled by the fact that like, I spend an inordinate amount of my time developing lesson plans for my children, and I'm I'm fortunate in that I have that skill, and um, that I, I enjoy it. But it's been very instructive for me about all the things that I lecture about. You know, just how hegemonic the curriculum is and how few resources exist for us to engage our children in their early and developmental years into a different you know frame of sensibility and questioning and wondering and understanding Mm. and i was on a call um, I was on a, a, a Maori TV last night, which is Maori or the Maori or the indigenous people of New Zealand last night doing an interview. And it was just so striking to me how, you know, the, here's another colonial context and they're struggling with the same thing. Like they rolled out a national, you know, curriculum and it just completely ignores all of the radicalized and racialized inequities that had happened as a part of the colonial project. And it's, and so, so here we are in a, in a moment of crisis, which crisis always presents opportunity. Mm-hmm. And in this moment of opportunity for us to really reflect on who we are and to bring up new, que- we, we, we have defaulted back to the status quo. We've defaulted back to protecting middle class and wealthy sensibilities. And that, I mean, it's not surprising to me, but I'm just, I'm just sad, man. Like, damn, Mm. like we, this crisis presents an opportunity and and we we're, we're not we're not capitalizing on it. We're not we're not using this opportunity to really question what is possible for us as a nation. And the result is 
and 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 will be like mark my words what you know april 15 36 or april 16 316 p.m say it so i said it that you know schools are social mirrors and those who have the least get the least and those who have the most get the most and We've talked about a digital divide for a long time. Well, now we have the COVID divide. And this COVID divide um, extends way beyond access to the internet and devices. You know, every way you can think about a social, economic, political opportunity divide, it is manifesting. And I'm deeply concerned about what this is going to mean when we come back to school for the children and the families that have, that are already have already been deeply disconnected and now are exponentially disconnected. And it's, it's shameful that this, this really, you know, frankly could have been an opportunity for us to say, okay, we're in crisis. Let's start with the least among us. Let's start with the most vulnerable. Let's start with the most wounded and build our strategy vertically from there. And I feel like what we've done the opposite. And there's little to no conversation about all these children and all these families that have like distance learning for real, like distance learning presumes all kinds of infrastructure that we, 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 we know doesn't exist because you had a whole conversation since the 80s about digital divide. So why are you talking to me about digital learning, right? Why, why is that the conversation? Why isn't the conversation justice learning, democratic learning, freedom learning? Like why is distance the primary focus and investment of our national public schooling system. Mm-hmm. And it's not just us. Like, I don't, I don't want to like indict the U S and throw the rest of the world into like, you know, utopia. I'm on a call last night with New Zealand. Who's the, the it's the same approach. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. a, a radical unwillingness to acknowledge where we're at sorry i digress um no no man i so the you touched on homeschooling and uh you know this this whole word of distance also connects to what if what's presented as like the solution to flattening the curve if we have social distancing we have distance learning it's like a lot of that's that's kind of kicked around just as an aspect of how we get past this and the lack of justice um the perpetuated you know uh inequities is like being compounded uh as everyone is 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 grappling with this and you know seeing those inequities up close right like um before before I ran for office, it was really easy to point out everything wrong with the system. And then now I'm governing 
And then whenever I fix my mouth to defend the system, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, shit, am I the man now? Hold <laughs> on, like, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> If I even try to offer some context, so yeah, I feel you, bro. For a failed system, you know, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and when you think about, like, you know, how black, like, what, what, one of my, I talk about this a lot. Like, one of my guiding questions was, um, what school can I tell a black family and confidence that this school is going to do right by your child, and and what's that based on? One hundred. Yep. Because this, um, and I wanted, I mean, this was why the homeschooling thing started to become more and more attractive to me um, because I, because because it started to, what started to mount was this, um, a lack of trust in, this, in schools. I don't even have children, you know, and, 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 I, and I, deal with the, I deal with parents that uh, yeah. you know, know how to get active, know how to get in your face over their child. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's your baby. Of course, you know. And then I was, and so my, one of my things is like, dang, like if I love somebody this much, could I entrust it to the system? Yep. You know? um, and so uh, you run a school, um, you've worked in education, you've run schools. Like I know that the, the community that you build around your students goes beyond the classroom. Um, uh, you know, what, if, if you had to, and maybe this isn't the right question, but like how, what would you say to that? Like, how how much should a family be entrusting a school with the future of their child, mm. or a black family? I mean, I don't know how you want to what direction you want to go with that, but yeah, I mean, we we get started with black families because if we get if we get if we get black families right, everybody else gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like we we we've never cared about black families. We've never cared about black children. So if we start with a conversation about what that means, then by definition, other children are going to be cared about. Um, and I think that's, that's the problem is that that hasn't been the starting point, right? It's been black families as a, a peripheral, black families as a like subgroup. It's like, no, black families are the families. You know, it, it, and I'd, I'd probably throw in that group indigenous families. Like, who are the two groups that have experienced genocide in this nation? Okay, well, African people and indigenous people. All right, start with them. Get it, get it squared with them. What's the debt owed to them? What's the debt owed to their children and their families? Because if you square with them, then you square. So... You know, from my from my perspective, it's off top. The only thing I want you to talk about with my babies is wellness. And you know, I I I I said this last night on on, on New Zealand TV. I said I told this story about how I've been in these rooms pre-COVID. <laughs> um, with, you know, all these superintendents, okay? And, 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 and at, at moments, like, like the superintendents are some of the largest school districts in the U.S. And I asked them, I said, okay, check this out. We're, we're, you, you're about to take a forced choice survey. 
forced choice meaning that you have to choose one of the choices I offer you. You can't have both. Okay, this is not a smorgasbord, right? This is not a, 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 a multiple choice exam. You have to choose one. Here are your options. And by the way, I don't want you thinking about any children except your own. I'm not talking about like all the kids in the schools that you're most concerned about, blah, blah, blah. Like, no. I'm talking about your babies. And if you don't have children by chance, then picture the children you don't have yet. Okay, because that's who we're talking about. Okay, here we go. Option A, your child scores in the, in the top quartile for all state standardized academic exams, but they score in the bottom quartile for all of the current measurements we have in public health and social epidemiology for wellness. Option B, your child scores in the top quartile for all of the public health measures of wellness and in the bottom quartile for all of the academic measures of literacy and mathematical progress. Choose. Every single one of them. And I've done this multiple times. Choose B. And then I say, yeah, I <laughs> of course, right? Of course. So then I say, okay, what are your measurements for wellness? Naria, nobody can name them because there aren't any. And then I say, you measure what matters in your schools. Which means that you can, you can talk to me all you want about the wellness of children, but if you don't measure it, Everybody, children, staff, site leadership knows it doesn't matter because what matters is what you're measuring. I'm not saying reading and writing and math don't, measure, don't matter. But what I am saying is, is that we know what we know absolutely in the research, social epidemiology, neuroscience, physiology, child development, psychology, is that the leading indicators of student development are wellness indicators, self-esteem, cultural identity, relationships, right? Th those are the leading indicators. The lagging indicators are the things you're paying all the attention to. And the truth is that the kids that are, that are doing well on the lag indicators are doing well on the lead indicators because their cultural identity and their relationships are already valued in this society. So because their lead indicators are default supported, their lag indicators show up well. But if you want to change the lag indicators for kids who are constantly under attack for their cultural identity, for their relationships, for their neighborhood, for their ancestors, for the language they speak, 
for, 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 for all the things that identify them as outside of the mainstream white Anglo-Saxon Protestant English-speaking English male identity, then you have to reorient your schools to value those first because those are the lead indicators. And lead indicators pull lag indicators. So when lead, lead indicators in, increase, lag indicators come along. So you can't tell, uh, I know the research. And I know the research is crystal clear on this, that if you want lag indicators to go up, you have to improve lead indicators because they're the pull indicators for the lag indicators. All this to say that COVID-19, this like, you know, global epidemic, creates an opportunity for us to say, huh, perhaps the things that we've been investing in and focused on in schools and in our mainstream institutions are the wrong things. And the open question for me is, will we use this crisis moment to reevaluate the purpose and the promise of public schools or not. Because if we do, then we'll look at the research. We'll look at the practice that has actually worked for those that are most in need of a public sector that serves them. And what is undeniable in that research and practice is that what is most needed is a focus on wellness not to the exclusion of reading, writing, and math, but a prioritizing, not rhetorically, not programmatically, but at the core, at the foundation. And if it's at the core, and if it's at the foundation of your practice, then you're measuring it. Because you know if your foundation is not solid, then all the other things that you're investing in won't land and produce the outcomes that you want. Yeah, the well, one of the um, I think tensions around having a like progressive or social justice focused um, approach to education is that um, it can sometimes get uh, maybe I don't know if co-opted is the right word, but there's there's like a there's a de-emphasis on on measurements. The state tests don't matter, grades don't matter. Um, and what I hear you saying is that uh, measurements have to be prioritized. It's the, 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 we have to refocus what we measure. Um, and so you have like a, uh, and if I have that wrong, you know, you can let me know. But you also have a, a, a school where this is, you know, you, you have to you have to grapple with all of these um, very real requirements that our state and local authorities have around, you know, what how a school is accredited and chartered, you know, and then like how to hire people around a particular competence. There's like all these evaluations that you all the criteria you, you, you teach educators right to enter the classroom. All that is based on, you know, very real requirements and measurements. Um, how does how does the wellness how do the wellness indicators play out? How are they playing out in practice at Roses? Man, we've it's been a real struggle. 
you know, like, because, um, you know, we're designed as a lab school to really, you know, push this conversation to say that, look, what we've been doing doesn't work. And you can, you can tweak it to the cows come home. It's just lipstick on the pig. So, so like we, we, we've got to innovate. We've got to, education is the least innovational um, sector that, that, that I've seen. You know, we're, we're really close to Silicon Valley. The biggest funder of roses is Google, um, which is ironical because when, when, and, and I've had a, you know, I don't know if I'd say a lot, but I've had, I've had quite a bit of access to um, Silicon Valley. And, uh, and in my conversations with them, what they have said is like, our biggest asset, this is a direct quote from multiple, like really significant players in Silicon Valley. They've said our biggest asset in Silicon Valley is failure. And I was like, huh, right, say more. They said, we, we have an entire structure built around failure because we know failure is progress. And then I started to back that out, right? And I'm like, okay, let me... in schools, failure's hidden. Failure's shamed. So th th this directly undermines innovation. There's not a culture of innovation. So then you pull back again, right? And you're like, well, why is that? Because schools aren't failing. Schools are doing exactly what they're designed to do. The right kids are succeeding and the right kids are failing. And I promise you, there would be like a massive investment in innovation if in June, wealthy white kids scored as well on SATs, APs, and state standardized tests as black and brown kids currently score. And black and brown kids scored like white kids on APs and SATs. So this is how you know, right, that this is by design. Because if it were inverted and a different group of kids failed, it'd be a statewide crisis. We would shut that shit down. And there would be a mass investigation into what is happening in public schools where wealthy white kids are failing and poor black and brown kids are succeeding. That is the definition of apartheid. So this idea that we're going to create these schools that do the math, reading, you know, language, all those things, and wellness without orienting themselves around the larger social, political, economic context is, is the problem.
that we don't, we don't tell the truth about the, the conditions in which we're actually trying to do this work. And so at Rose's, like we, we tried to like invert it, right? And it's like, no, like first and foremost, what we are concerned about is cultural identity, relationships, right? Ethnic studies. And look, there's, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff at Rose's that, that we should have and could have done better. But it, in an innovation culture where you are a startup, the expectation is that there is like widespread failure and that there's, a, there's a, the circumstances under which you learn from that failure and you improve. Our failures as a school, which I can enumerate, you know, at length, were not used as opportunities for us to learn and grow. And then to influence OUSD and other like spaces. Instead, they were used as cause for us to not continue. So we're, we're, we're literally in a battle for our lives right now for this school to continue mm. because we, we've said, look, we don't care about SBAC. And look, I, I, I'm not talking philosophically or theoretically. My sons go to roses. Okay. Like back to my earlier question, what do you care about? What I care about with my sons is that they know who they are and that they know who their ancestors are. And they know, because if, 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 if all of that is there, if the self-esteem is there, if the cultural identity is there, if the food, clothing, and shelter, and safety is there, the reading and writing and the math is coming. I ain't tripping. I know it's coming. Everything we know in the research is that it's coming. But we act as if kids who grow up in a white supremacist, classist, homophobic, patriarchal society. And don't have those core elements of food, clothing, shelter, safety, identity, self-esteem, if they don't have those things stable, we act as if they're going to suddenly perform on these state and national standardized exams in the same way as kids who have all of that stability. And I look, I'm in schools and districts all the time that claim to be research-based. And when I get on the ground and I look at their practice, I watch them consistently, and I'm not talking about teacher practice. I'm talking about institutional culture. I'm talking about like leadership decisions. Completely ignore the research. So all I'm saying is this, that if we're going to be research-based and data-driven, I, I, sign me up. I'm down for it. Because I know what the research says. 
and I know what the data drivers need to be. My issue is that I'm in schools all the time that make those claims and then literally ignore the research and the data drivers. And you can't have it both ways. That's the forked tongue. That's the devil. That's corruption of a public democratic system. So if we're going to be research-based and data-driven, then give me ethnic studies. Give me different metrics by which you're measuring student growth and progress. And absolutely, I'm down, sign me up for reading, writing, and math measurements. I'm not, I'm not throwing those out, but I'm saying that if those are your primary metrics for student progress, you are ignoring the research and you are ignoring the data because those are lag indicators. And the leading indicators are the ones that we need to be paying attention to because if you're not getting progress on the lead indicators, then you're not gonna see progress in the lag indicators. And all the psychometricians know this, all of the researchers in, in fields outside of education have been arguing this for decades. And education has been resisting it and ignoring it because it's terribly inconvenient for two groups. <clears throat> it's terribly inconvenient for the groups that schools are working for. And it's terribly inconvenient for the corporations that are deeply invested in school curriculum, school textbooks, and school testing. And as long as we are catering to them, then we will get the results we are currently getting. And if that's what we're going to do, cool. They just say that. And then our communities can make a decision about whether or not we really want to invest in that system. Back to the homeschooling conversation. Right? Uh -huh. But we're dishonest, yeah. right? We're not telling the truth about what, what it is that we're actually investing in. And we couch it, we, we, we bury it in this rhetoric about rigor, opportunity, okay? And that's my issue, is that it's, it's, it's you know, pre-civil rights, we just, we just told the truth. <laughs> like, we don't give a fuck about you. Right? You're going to go to substandard schools. Like you, you're going to have substandard jobs. You're going to live in segregated neighborhoods. We don't care. We don't care. You're like, you're, 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 you're not, you don't have value, right? Or you have, you have less value. Post-civil rights, we've created a narrative and a context and a lacquer that covers up the actual practice that's happening. And the truth is, is that most of the people who are negatively impacted by this, how much time do they actually spend in schools? H how can we expect a single working parent to sit in their child's class for multiple days and really see what's up? So that's not happening, right? So there's, a level, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an absence of transparency, right? That is covered up by a rhetoric of promise. And as King said, you know, like, you could write all the checks you want. But if those checks, if those promissory notes come back 
insufficient funds, then you're dealing with a bankrupt system. Right. There's a, um, the, a, a, lot of, a lot of the aspects of like cultural identity and, um, you know, it's, it's as a curriculum approach, I hear you saying it as like ethnic studies. One of, one of, my, uh, one of my personal heroes is Malcolm X. And, um, and a, a lot of the knowledge itself, rhetoric that he was introduced to, like came through, you know, the Nation of Islam, which, which was like problematic for some reasons. But their roots were from Marcus Garvey. You know, I'm, you already know all this. I'm just sort of giving some kind of yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, you know, with the in the, the Garveyites, right? And uh, all of all of they talked about a supremacy, which um, is like we're great at the expense of others, which I think like other, uh, which is has some you know this is somewhat problematic, but it was also response to what was. Um, you know, a society was telling them otherwise. And so they, they got rooted in this sort of like extreme perversion that taught themselves into a, a position of honor and power. And um, when, when I think about, you, you, mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned a bit about the, the conversation about 9-11, right? And, uh, and that's connected to like what the curriculum looks like for, uh, Suggested topics to talk about like right. black history schools, right? right? Like Rosa Parks, MLK. Right. Um, not not Kimmet, not Garvey, not right. Malcolm. Um, I, I didn't, I actually didn't, I had never heard of Nat Turner or mm. uh, Birth of a Nation. Right. Uh, like the, the actor first movie, right? Till I got to college. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, so like uh, when, when I, taking it back to sort of that like Malcolm, like knowledge itself, that being an avenue to liberation or like self-actualization, which, I, which I've heard you talk about a lot. And, um, and schools not being well-equipped like to address that is, um, is, is one of the things that, you know, I don't trust schools to do, right? So like families have to do it. Unless, I mean, I'm, I'm a policymaker, right? <laughs> and, so, and so one of the things I've been considering this is my last year on the school board is like, oh, what if I introduced some curriculum mandates that talked about this like rooted history from Kemet and some of these other figures and then in the implementation, it's always problematic because you can have, we can have ethnic studies and inadequate educators, you know, or like good curriculum and inconsistent attendance. Like it's like all these variables that drive outcomes. And so um, like the implementation piece right now, that was, that was a lot, but right now, like one of the things, I wanted to get your insights on this. The current discussion at, in our board is if we should give all kids A's for the semester because of COVID, right? And um, in the discussion, it seemed compelling. Like, oh yeah, I got you know, um, it's a crisis. Like, now it's not. It's not one of the suggest. It's not one of the recommended options from the California Department of Education. I posted the direction we gave staff on Facebook, 
and a bunch of educators are weighing in like this is like highly problematic there's like do not this is gonna this is gonna take all the leverage away to for kids to do anything um and so uh commenting on like all A's what your thoughts are I know you don't have a ton of context but I'm sure you have some thoughts and the 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 issues of implementation when it comes to this this you know this aspiration about introducing topics that are focused on knowledge itself. On the topic of all A's <laughs> I would just say like who cares? Like for real? Look, I'm from the 3400 block in East Evelyn. And if you survive COVID, you excellent. You know what I'm saying? Like, I gives no f if somebody from Piedmont survives COVID because I already know they gonna survive COVID. So you, what? Like, as if the playing field was level before this and we were being compared, you know, like A versus B versus C on some like equitable, like, man. Okay, word. You don't want to do all A's? Got you. You come live where we live for the rest of the global pandemic and I'm going to go live where you live, okay? And I'm going to give you my monthly allowance, and, and you're going to give me your monthly allowance, and then we're going to talk about grades. <laughs> you. 100. Like, this is, this is why revolutions start. You don't want to give up an A? Man, stuff like that makes me question humanity. You, you, you don't have a clue. This is the debate you want to have with me. You want to have academic, rigorous debates with me. While our people are going homeless, can't eat, can't, and, 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 and you want to talk about homework? How about homework is how do you survive without food? How do you survive when your entire block has tents on it? Social distancing? Go to, go, go to the places where all these homeless communities are concentrated and hand-to-hand -hand drug deals are happening every day. And my mama has to walk past there because that's where she cleans houses. That's where she cleans hotel rooms. That's where, that's where she's an essential worker. Come on, man. Like, cats need a grip on reality. So everybody who wants to raise, okay, cool. Raise your objections. We have a special project as a part of the SFUSD school board called exposure so everybody who's concerned with the all a policy right 
your concerns are registered. And what we would like you to do is take you on an exposure educational experience and then review your stance on all a policy. Because that shit will, but will change your worldview. Seeing is believing, right? So, so just do a little pilot project for everybody who's, who's down for it and everybody who's not down for it. I take some cross group and say, okay, cool. So you down for it, you not down for it. We just want to have a policy discussion, okay? Ten of y'all. We're going to take y'all to the places where there's, there's relative COVID security. Whatever those, I mean, I'm from SF. I'm from Oakland. So I, I know where I take you in Oakland, but wherever you take them in SF, okay? And here's what kids are experiencing. Here's what families are experiencing, okay? Now, the second half of our day, we're going to go down in the lower bottoms. We're going to go down in the grimy, grimy, okay? Here's what those kids are experiencing. Same city, same city, not a different, you know, suburban zip code, like same city, same policy is going to affect all these kids. Let's come back and let's just talk about it. Let's just talk about it. What'd y'all see? How y'all feel about this policy now, right? Like let people be exposed. There's a brother, uh, what is his name escaping me right now? Um, he just had the film come out, Black Man. Uh, uh, at, no, uh, uh, God, Brian Stevenson, thank you. Okay. Okay, Brian with a Y, Stevenson with a V for your viewers. Um, so anyway, he's you know arguably the most well-known death row lawyer in the United States. Um, his, his book just became, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood blockbuster. Okay. Um, anyway, he tells this story. I, I, I've, I've been in a couple of different talks with Brian and, and, and he told a story one time when I was in talk with him about, he was, he, he, he said that, you know, that, that one of the biggest problems we have in the United States is that you, you've got all these people who are really, and, and I would argue like a lot of those people that are like saying, oh, you know, we can't do all A policy. These are not bad people, okay? The, 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 these are people who are, you know, try, they, they, they want our children to be held to higher standards, okay? So we, we got, he says, Brian Stevenson says, we've got all these really smart, committed, dedicated people who are investing all this energy in, in social justice. And they're sitting around these tables and they're designing policies like all A's, not all A's, right? He says, the problem is that they have no proximity to the pain that they're actually developing policy to respond to. And so they develop a policy that is based on their worldview. And it's not by definition a bad policy, it's just ignorant. And what it ends up being is aspirin. And aspirin will relieve your headache, but it won't keep you from getting headaches. 
And real medicine is not aspirin. Real medicine gets at the root cause so that you stop having headaches. So I would encourage you all to develop policy that isn't aspirin. Policy that's actually rooted in a response to proximity. So you've got to get the people that are making these policy decisions proximate to the pain that they're trying to resolve. Who are those most in pain? And how does our policy respond in a meaningful way to their pain? Well, we're in a global pandemic and crisis always elevates inequalities. So those who, and schools are social mirrors. So those who have the least get the least. And those who have the most get the most. And every policy coming out of a school board should start first with those who have the least. What is the policy that makes the most sense for the children in our community that are the most vulnerable and the most wounded? Because history will judge you based on how you treated the most vulnerable ones. If you claim to be a pluralistic multiracial democracy, that's how you be judged. If you are a social apartheid, if you are an oligarchy, then you will be judged based on your ability to support those most vertical in your apparatus. But that's not what we say we are. So we have a bit of a conundrum. Is that we claim to be pluralistic multiracial democracy while designing policy that looks oligarchical. So from a policy perspective, right, the approach needs to be different. Get proximity. Spend time interviewing the kids who don't have access to distance learning, who don't have access to devices, who don't have access to internet, right, and figure out what is the assessment and grading policy for them. Because if you verticalize that, it will be fair. The second part of your question, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Liberation um, coming from this like philosophy of uh, knowledge itself, um, the baseline of knowledge itself. Yeah, I mean. That always has shortcomings in implementation. You know, Malcolm, Marcus, Reyes Tijerina, like, you know, you know, cite whoever you want. Um, you know, Black Elk, um, Tamaiti from the Maori, like, you know, the global perspective is very similar that knowledge itself is, 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 is the essence of, um, thriving. And I think that um, without without our children really understanding who they are and who they you know who they come from, then what we're developing is mechanics. So we're developing children who can do the mechanics of reading, and who can do the mechanics of writing, and who can do the mechanics of math, which 
um, which doesn't transform societies, right? The transformational um, mathematicians and writers and thinkers are the ones who transcend the mechanics. And I'm not saying the mechanics don't matter. Like you've got to learn the mechanics of one, two, three, and ABC. But to transcend that, to become an artist, to be, become a writer, I'm a writer, like I'm an artist, you know, to become a mathematician, to become a scientist, right? Um, you have to transcend the mechanics. And to do that, you have to find yourself in the craft. And that means you have to know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, then what happens is that you, that you just learn the mechanics. Okay. And, and I think that this isn't just true for kids of color. Okay. I think this is happening in communities like, you know, all over the country. And this is why you see, you know, m most of the school shootings are happening in white suburban communities because these kids have like, literally lost themselves and nobody's paying attention. Right. And, and, and you know, when they pay attention, they pay attention when somebody shows up with a, with, with a machine gun. Right. And, and then it's too late. So the absence of a commitment to children leaving school, loving themselves. Okay. So we can just, just, we can let identity go. Like I'm just talking about self-love and self-esteem, right? Do children love themselves for who they are more when they leave school than when they showed up? And, and I would venture to say, that if we actually measured that, the answer would be no. Right. And so part of my, my thing is, can we, the question is, can we trust schools to accomplish that given all of the variables that come into play when you're trying to, with, with implementation, like personnel, what? like uh, schools, schools are public institutions. They can be whatever we say they are. So if we say, look, you school are charged with, with making sure that every child that crosses your threshold leaves loving themselves more than when they came in your doors, we can make that happen. But that means that we've got to clear the plate. See, here's the problem is that everybody's like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds great, Jeff. And then what they do is they add that onto the plate of educators and already like exceedingly full plate. Okay, no. As a nation, as a community, we have to choose what's most important to us. And the way that you do that first is you clear your plate. And when I say clear your plate, I mean everything. I mean, I want reading off the table. I want writing off the table. I want math off the table. I want science. I want everything. I want a clear plate. And then I wanna say, as a community, What's most important? And if you tell me wellness, self-esteem, self-love, identity is most important, cool. Put that on the plate first. It's centered. It's protected. It's insular. It's foundational. What else is important to you? Reading, added. Math, added. Science, added. Peripherally, what's at the core? Self-esteem, self-love, identity. We don't do that, right? We've cored other things because 
schools were designed for a population that already had a solid identity, that already had self-esteem built in by virtue of the fact that this whole society was built for them. So you could add in all these other things that didn't need to be core because those weren't handled by the family. This nonsense that white families care more about their kids than, than families of color is fucking absurd. Put a white family in my neighborhood where every night it's rat-a-tat-tat. And let me see you care for your kids in the same way you currently care for your kids. It's going to change. So what's, what's the essence of our project and why is it that we are, keep talking about given all the acknowledgement that neighborhood to neighborhood there's radical inequality why do we keep talking about having schools look the same neighborhood to neighborhood that's not equality that's not justice that's inequity by definition so you start with the neighborhood right you start with the community you're serving and you say what, are the, what, what does it mean to be responsive to this community? Clear everything off the plate, center the things that are the most needed right now. And you can revisit that, right, over time. But we keep trying to transpose a middle-class model onto communities that don't have a middle-class experience. And, and the, the result is that we ignore all the basic needs, like identity, right, among other things, that kids living in vulnerable and wounded communities need first. And I, I want to emphasize again, I'm not saying that we don't teach kids how to read, write, and do math. I want my sons to read, write, and do math. I do. But if my sons know how to read, write, and do math, and they don't know who they are, and they don't know where they come from, then they don't know how to read, write, and do math. They just know how to be mechanics. They'll never be scientists. They'll never be writers. They'll never be mathematicians. And for me, that's the conversation. That's the nuanced conversation that we haven't had because we've tr tried to create these big mega systems, right? That map across all these different communities. And in that process, what we've done is we've prioritized the communities with the most privilege. And we tried to push that down into the communities with the least amount of privilege. And of course, that will never work because developmentally, that doesn't make sense for children. I want to, um, we've reached the top of the hour. And I want to be sensitive to your, uh, your time. Yeah, I got a 4.30. I got a 4.30. Another, another Zoom. I'm Zooming it. I'm Zooming it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I should give you some time to relax, too, before you. <laughs> um, let's, let's end talking about, talking about hip-hop. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, so I, your, your talk on uh, Tupac, um, you know, I'm familiar with. I put it. I put it in the description so people can check it out. The TED Talk on Tupac, um, and you have a school named after uh, a hip hop artist lyric, or you know, which connects to another. Yeah, Oxbook of poetry. Yep. Poetry. Um, you know what? 
who all right so just talk a little bit about the influence of of Tupac and um at its highest form you know what what hip-hop should be in three minutes so you <laughs> you know, I don't want to you know yeah 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 Ch- Chuck D said once that hip-hop is CNN for black and brown people and and I think that's that's right like you know, I, I, I check on CNN and MSNBC, you know, every day. If you follow my Twitter feed, you see, like, I, I drop little stories from them every once in a while with some commentary. But there's a, there's a way in which artistry um, tells a, a story that isn't often captured in the mainstream media. And, and, and that's not just true of hip-hop. I think it's generally true of artistry. But hip-hop is, and let's distinguish between hip-hop and rap. Right. Um, I think hip hop has a, has a historical um, origin and originality that is about um, telling a truth from a perspective that is um, either denied, dodged, or ducked. And <clears throat> so I don't think it's an absolute truth. I don't think it's, it's I don't think it's a pure truth. Okay, but I think it's a truth that gives us a perspective that we have conveniently or perhaps inconveniently, time will tell, ignored. So in times of crisis, looking to artists, I think, is, is, is an important source of information and truth telling. If our goal is as, as people in positions of leadership Okay, is to develop a full perspective, particularly the perspective of those who are the least represented in the voices, the, the, the loudest voices of our constituency. Okay, what is hip hop telling me? What are the streets telling me? Right? How much time am I spending proximate to the pain? Okay, that's leadership to me. So hip hop is an element of that, right? And I, I don't want to like act as if hip-hop is a panacea right hip-hop doesn't represent the entire black brown poor community at all but it is a perspective artistic perspective that has too long been ignored and you know there's a reason that you know like we opened an elementary school bro like like Pac was killed in 96 Tupac was killed in 96 okay my sons are seven. They know who Tupac is. And it ain't because they go to Roses and Concrete. There's something transcendent, right, about Pac's message, which we need to be paying attention to, right? What, why does that message resonate still? It can't be entertainment. Because if it was entertainment, then it would have it faded out like all these other rappers, but kids are still hanging on to Pac's message. There's something about the essence of, of hip-hop, the essence of true community art that tells a truth that is transcendent of time. And if we're going to be community-responsive leaders, if we're going to represent our full constituency, then 
we have to pay attention to hip hop. And I think there's a way in which we look at hip hop and we dismiss the message because of the messenger, right? Like folks don't want to hear black folks, particularly young black men speaking truth about their reality because it's terribly inconvenient. My Theo, my maestro, Jared Theo says, the wounded ones speak the most truth and we resent them for it. And you see this in schools, you see it in the broader society, right? That when truth telling shows up in the form of youth, particularly dark skinned youth speaking their truth, we can't handle it. We tell them, you, you can't talk like that. You can't curse like that. Like you can't, because the truth is too raw. And what it does is it exposes our hypocrisy. And hip hop is a place that if we can sit in it, if we can sit in it and receive the message and the truth telling without judgment and really hear what our young people are telling us, then we can actually develop policy and practice that is responsive to the most vulnerable and the most wounded. And history narrates that society as a just society. And I fear deeply fear that the, the, the history that my sons will read will be one that is maljudgmental of the society that we built because we turn the volume completely down on the people that suffer the most in our communities right now. And it doesn't have to be that way. This is uh, Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. He is the founder of Roses in the Concrete, the founder. A of founder, a founder, not the founder, okay. a founder. Excuse me. <laughs> One of many. A co-founder of the 10 Project, which we didn't get to get into. I'm, I'm, I'm carrying one of these books, uh, What a Coach Can Teach a Teacher. Um, you've written more, haven't you? I've written a, a little bit. Folks <laughs> <laughs> that are interested can find it. This is one of the earlier ones, I think. One of your yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's also a, a professor at SF State. Um, good brother. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you, my brother. Take care of yourself. Be safe. Be well. It's an honor to have been spending a little time with you.